How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Waterfowl 365 presented by BTBN. I am your host, Chris Adams. However you are listening to this thing, make sure you hit that subscribe button, whether it's on iTunes, Podbean, or the Podbean or the podcast app on your iPhone. And while you're there, leave us a little five-star review and some feedback and a comment. I really appreciate the, the ones who have done it, and I appreciate you if you take this time to do it now. If you're not following along with us on social media, check out BTBN on Facebook and Instagram. It's the best place to keep up with what's going on, new episodes, head-to-head call maker competition, all that good stuff. So check us out on social media, BTBN, type in BTBN podcast, and we'll get you added in that closed group as well. If you want to get yourself a paperweight of a duck call made, feel free to check me out over at Unstable Calls on Instagram, and I can make you a really nice looking call. Uh, it doesn't sound half bad either from what I've heard, but uh, I can get you on the list to make you a nice call. Um, if you want to get a nice adult a piece of apparel, a nice adult piece of apparel, I don't know what the heck those other words were, but uh Check out Fox Red Apparel on Instagram. They make some really nice stuff that's not for the dazzle jean wearing guy. It's just that classic, nice look, single colors that, uh, I don't know, just has a good look to it. So it, it looks like the stuff I'd wear. So check out Fox Red Apparel, Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff. Uh, today I have a call maker and a guide for you out of Canada little Ontario. He's been hunting Saskatchewan as well. We're going to talk what it's like this year with 95% of his clients being uh, Americans and being gone and what the birds are looking like up there and uh, get into a little call making as well. So without further ado, Mr. Ryan Reynolds. Ryan, how are we doing today, buddy? Not too bad. It's not too bad. Yourself? Oh, it's not too bad. It's my one random day off during the week. Uh, mm. It is cold, rainy here in Missouri. I cannot complain except for season is not open for like another four weeks in my neck of the woods. Yeah, that is a, that is a problem having a waterfowl type day off in the middle of not having an open season. I can see where that would be a little frustrating at this point. Dude, it's unbelievable. We had, I, I drive 10 hours a day, and I watched a feed of five, 600 specs roll through the day before that. I found another, you know, feed at three or 400 specs, and you know they're going to be gone in two days because they're moving south and they're moving quick. We have resident honker season open where you obviously can shoot Canada geese, and then it'll close after 10 days at the midpoint of October. And then you'll have nothing until like the midpoint of November for uh, geese. And that's right when specs roll through every single year. And they're never there when regular season opens up. That would that would make me pull my hair out. That would I don't I don't know how I would adjust to life like that with splits like that and everything else. That would be hard. It's sometimes it's nice like in, okay, so you got September first, you got dove season kicks off. So everybody's all hype, you know, it's hot as hell. Get out, shoot some doves, they're all dumb. Then the next weekend, we'll have teal season for two and a half weeks. And it's like, all right, you know, we're I'm kind of done with teal now. They're too freaking finicky, because they're just like specs. They're blowing through. And uh, then we'll have like a week and a half off. And then all of a sudden, it's like, hey, here's two weekends of honker hunting. And now we just got done with that. So it's like, we have a month of just downtime it's like all right yes it was hunting season you know if you're a a turkey hunter which i like turkey hunting i don't like fall turkey hunting or if you're a deer hunter you know you're right in the middle of those two seasons but for a waterfowler you're just kind of sitting around twiddling your thumbs right yeah a month month is a big stretch to twiddle your thumbs a couple days wouldn't be bad to kind of have an excuse to catch up on some sleep but a month yeah it'd be jonesing pretty hard by the end of that month getting ready for 
again. Yeah, yeah, it does make it nice to uh, get you know the old lady off your back for a little bit of time, spend some family time without half the day being gone. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir on that one. Yeah, that <laughs> makes sense. That does. <laughs> well, Ryan, tell me a little bit about yourself, brother. Tell me, uh, you're up in Ontario. Yeah, I uh, I live in Ontario. Uh, I live in eastern Ontario, actually. I'm about, I don't know, I'm just, just south of the nation's capital, uh, south of Ottawa. Um, See, I didn't even know up. that because I'm American and I'm fucking stupid. Yeah, nobody, nobody, nobody knows that. A little tidbit of information. Fun fact of the day. Check that off the to-do list. Got that fun fact taken care of for you. Um, yeah, so eastern Ontario. Um, live right in the middle of the flyway over here. Um, just actually, we just had our first hunt here in Ontario um, this morning. Not opening day by any means. It's been open here since, well, into September. But we've been in Saskatchewan, so we just got back from out there and decided to get out of bed and go kill a limit of honkers this morning. Um, so we did that. Um, more about me. I'm 35 years old, I guess, so uh, still got lots to learn. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, Been making this, this thing industry. sound like a uh, making this thing sound like a dating app right here. Yeah, I'm right. Thirty five. Like I like sunrises. <laughs> yeah, I, I love sunrises. Not a big fan of taking pictures of them unless there's something laying on the ground in front of them with some decoys in the background but definitely love sunrises um yeah and i've been lucky enough to be in this industry in the waterfowl industry for this is my 18th season so um kind of dabbled in it in a lot of different ways really um been a professional guide slash outfitter for those 18 for those 18 years and started uh, a call company up here shoot seven seven and a little bit years ago um yeah so kind of the waterfowl industry has been been my life i'm very fortunate to uh take my licks to be able to be in it um as a solid career to support my family for a lot of years now so that's that's, uh that's that's me in a nutshell that's awesome man so you were uh did you start hunting pretty pretty young in life or was it like when you got into high school and got into the guiding game you really got in depth with it no i uh i was pretty well fully submersed in it right from as long as i can remember my old man uh is is a big hunter um you know right from a young age you know whether it was rabbit hunting or whatever he took me and you know shooting guns and then the 22 and then the 410 in the backyard and all that kind of stuff so no it's been a big part of my life right uh right from the get-go essentially and then um in high school it kind of escalated you know do you kind of kind of get uh get get more gear and you know you get your first job and you got some extra money in your pocket and you load up on the gear and you got your own wheels and yeah and then um the calling addiction took over uh and kind of get better on that so then well she's just a slippery slope from there right (laughs) right exactly yeah it seems that way man it's like right when you hit that 15 16 you start driving doing all that stuff it's like, hey, I don't have to hunt with, you know, my dad and uncle every day. Now, now I can go hunt with my buddies, and I can right. tell them I know everything versus, you know, having your your family members run the hunt. Yeah, 100%. Like, I mean, it's funny because, like, my old man and my hunting um, uh, experiences have really come. Like, you know, I look back, and it's like, oh, yeah, I remember when, you know, it was, 10, 11 years old, you know, dad say, hey, we're going to go goose hunting. And, you know, we go and you know, put this decoy over there and put that decoy over there and let's do this. And, you know, he ran the show and it was like, ah, oh, this is cool, right? Hooks, bam. And now, because I own an outfitting operation in two different provinces and do this for a living and have for years, he literally calls me and he's like, yo, when are we going to shoot geese? I'm getting itchy. Okay, we'll do this. He shows up, puts his chair down, you know, stands there and is like, 
he basically has his own glorified personal guide. And he's like, I did all this for you when I'm when you were younger. <laughs> I'm not doing it anymore. Like, tell me when to shoot type deal. So it's kind of come, it's come full circle now, which is kind of cool. So hell yeah, man! That's like, uh, you know, the I raised you and taught you how to do this. So now it's your turn to pay it back forward. Exactly. I do not want to do any lifting anymore. Tell me when to pull the trigger. I'll be there. <laughs> So you uh, you run an outfitter, and obviously everybody knows the border's been closed all season. I'm sure that had a drastic effect on your business. You were talking like 95% of customers were were not coming up there this year. Would you say that that's a close representation of what Americans versus Canadians book with you? Yeah, you're, you're, you're very close there. Yeah, I... Um uh when thunder booked full in the spring for this season um i had two groups of canadians between 16 weeks total booked type deal um yeah when the border stayed closed we kind of you know had to rejig things and you know see what we could put together um for canadian clients um i was very fortunate to be able to put you know a handful of Canadian guys on the books um, to keep the staff, get the staff and keep the wheels moving and stay in contact with farmers and the dust off the gear and, you know, content and everything like that. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's definitely gear, um, but I'm not in the position where I'm around complaining about it because realistically, all of us up here in this business are in the exact age. Um, and, really at the end of the day there's guys that are way worse off than than i am so i'm more in the i feel grateful and fortunate uh, side of the fence rather than the complain about it side of the fence. but i'll also stand here and say they better figure it out and have her open for next year because we're ready to get back up here <laughs> yeah yeah it's crazy man and you were talking about uh it was kind of a lead-up you were talking about how you were, you know, head over heels in love with it when you were a kid. And uh, is it just not as common up there? Or is it like, why do you not have nearly as many Canadians book? Like, I'm from Missouri. If you have a lodge here in Missouri, you're going to be booked up, you know, year round. Is it just the sheer number of population that's going up there? Or does everybody up there have access to their own their own spot. Well, see, in my this, in my opinion, you run into kind of a combination there, right? And uh, it's it's kind of a two way street, really. I mean, in one sense, there's so much opportunity here that anybody that's serious enough about going to do it, um, you know, is going to get access, and they're going to weekend warrior it, and you know, scratch the itch enough because the resources are pretty much, for lack of better words, at their fingertips, right? Right. Um, so they're going to scratch that itch by being able to get out there and get on their own type deal. Um, right to the other side of it to where there's such a demand um, for non-resident hunting that, you know, you just roll with that because at the end of the day, that's where the demand is. That's where the long-term clientele is. And the good old exchange rate has been in our favor for a long time. So it kind of, there's, you know, there's that factor of it too, right? So there's, there's a lot of different things that roll in there, but I would say the two biggest things come down to demand the U S market to, for non-resident of demand because of the resources that are available to residents here in Canada. So. Dang. Yeah. That, that uh, definitely makes it tougher to you know narrow it down now like as far as land goes is it you know hunting around here in missouri you know you just go knock on a farmer's door hey you know can i hunt your property no okay how much is it going to cost to lease this type of property out it's already leased okay move on to the next guy that type of thing up there i've heard that uh like you can buy different tracks and stuff like that or or like zones is that yes so there's there's uh, two diff two different ways that that works. Realistically, like I mean, for example, where I live in Ontario, um, much like much like Missouri, by the sounds of it, you know, it's either you've been buddies with the farmer for ten years, so you're the one that hunts, or you're leasing it, or somebody already does one of those two things. 
to the farm like scouting missions are basically like more or less going and checking the farms that you have versus going and randomly finding a field and getting permission for it um so that's kind of how ontario works saskatchewan i mean you still have to get permission on everything but like as an outfitter in saskatchewan you have zones that you have to stay within and everything like that and it's more of a you know go find the birds track the farmer down and get permission um and there's no leasing that goes on in saskatchewan there's no tying it up you know it's uh hey it's wednesday we're looking to hunt can I get permission for the field? No, that. And, yep, good, go-ahead type deal. Or, nope, somebody's already spoken for it sort of thing. So it kind of, there's, you know, depends on, what, depends on what province you're in up here is how it works. Where Ontario's just more popular in terms of being, you know, block her down and keep it to yourself type deal. Got you. Hey, Ryan, I'm going to hit pause real quick. All right, we'll try this out a little bit. So uh, you were saying like you get these these tracks of land in Saskatchewan, and that's kind of where you stay in. Is that like for all guides, or as like do they divide up? Like outfitters have this certain track, and it kind of I guess we call them counties. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the whole province of Saskatchewan is broke up into zones for outfitters, and the province does it to regulate competition uh everything like that so these zones i mean they're they're, some of them are massive most of them are massive really and as an outfitter you're allowed to have so many zones and you have to operate your business uh within those zones so the province also regulates the leasing end of end of things to you know stop from outfits being able to go in and monopolize their zones essentially by renting or leasing land and basically shoving other guys out so it it actually works i love the system um i wish other provinces like ontario would get on board with it because it it legitimizes the business side of things it works for the landowners you know it, it works for for the outfitters it works for the local hunters and all that kind of stuff so it's a it's a pretty cool system really it, does it keep you guys from having to, like, race to the field and be the first ones there, you know, kind of set up? Yeah, it, it definitely does. Because, um, you know, I mean, you're always going to have the odd time where something might get crossed up, you know, where you talk to the farmer, but, you know, his his dad already gave somebody permission. He didn't know about it, and, you know, something like that might happen. But, I mean, that's a, that's a barely ever kind of kind of thing. But, yeah, it's... Uh, it definitely takes away from the, okay, well, there's a field full of geese, you know, we better get up at midnight and sleep in the truck and be the first ones there and then argue with four different people at daybreak. It definitely keeps that from happening, yes. That's crazy. Now, that's something that's uh, only for, like, the registered outfitters, like, because I know, uh, you know, I've had some buddies that would go up there and, you know, do their own thing or whatever and go Saskatchewan and knock on doors and, you know, never really got turned away that I know of, but has that ever happened where you had uh, somebody go up and freelancing and they were happened to be in your zone and you were like, well, hell, man, I didn't know they were hunting on this guy's place. Uh, It's a yes and no thing. So, so yes, the the zone allocations are just for guides. Uh, You know, let's call it freelancers or locals or whatever. Um, They can hunt anywhere they want. They can free-to-go type deal. Um, but, yes, we definitely run into, well, not this year, but on a normal year, um, <laughs> you know, we do cross paths with a lot of freelancers. We really do. You know, you'll go ask a car, it's like, oh, you know, somebody from the States just was just here and got permission on it type deal. So, yes, that that does happen, but that's a whole other topic, that one is. <laughs> That's crazy. It seems like the farmers are uh, pretty open to, you know, there's no, like, if you go hunt Arkansas and you're out of stater, you know, you definitely have a big target on your back, but it sounds like uh, they really don't mind nearly as much up there. No, they don't. I mean, Saskatchewan, man, like going through a wormhole back in time, it's like the wild, it's the wild west. People are friendly. People live a slower pace in life. You know, the, 
their closest neighbors three miles away. They're happy to see somebody show up in the driveway and have somebody to talk to and ask them about where they come from and everything like that. You know, respect the land and away you go type deal. It's it's an amazing, amazing place. And yeah, access is not is not the hard part of waterfowl hunting. There, access is is not the hard part by any means. So very cool, man. Now, my buddy told me when he came back down. We were talking about because uh, we have to. We so many of our farmers down here are like, no, we don't want you driving in the field. It doesn't matter how cold it is, how dry it is, you know. Finding ways to walk in, and he was like, you wouldn't believe it up there, man. I asked a farmer if if it was cool if I drive in the field, and he's like, well, why the hell wouldn't it be? I got to drive this, you know, thirty ton freaking tractor through the field. Is that something that uh, you've even ever ran across? Have you had to walk in? Yeah. The only time we've ever had to do walk-ins in Saskatchewan is when it literally has rained for days and turns into soup. And, you, I mean, you know you would be stuck as yeah. soon as you got off the grid road type deal. Other than that, now you nailed it. Like, I mean, that's, they do not care. Go right ahead. Because we run into that in Ontario, too. You know, we've got some farmers that, you know, they no-till, so they're worried about compaction and everything like that. And you know, It's a drought year. Uh, there's two-inch cracks in the dirt. Nope, don't drive in it. Don't want you in it. And you're like, uh, okay, then, whatever. We'll walk it in. Pretty <laughs> right. much, you know, the same, same type thing. But no, not in Saskatchewan. Huh, very interesting. Now, were you, uh, where you're at in Ontario, you said you're pretty close to Rusty Heron? Uh, yeah, I'm kind of on the opposite side of the province. Um, Rusty would be, I'm going to guess, like somewhere around six, seven hours. Um, to the west of me. Um, but yeah, I've hunted with Rusty in the past. I've known Rusty for quite a while. Um, uh, great, great guy. Really enjoyed the podcast that you guys did not too long ago, actually. Awesome, man. Yeah, he's a really, really good dude. So you're six or seven hours, uh, you said, to the west of him. So that's a long way to get in between the two provinces. It looks like, you know, just looking at a map. Yeah, Ontario's a beast. Uh, we literally just drove it, uh, going to and coming home from Saskatchewan. Down at the bottom of the province is probably the the smallest portion of it. Um, like, I've got another two hours to the east of me before I get to the Quebec border type deal. Um, but yeah, Rusty's kind of right at the bottom west corner there. I mean, you take... When we drove out to Saskatchewan... Uh, it took us what we had to go northern Ontario I want to say we were like 23 hours just to get out of Ontario jeez that's what I was looking at dude Ontario is like the size of Texas plus some yeah Ontario is not fun to drive through it's like banging your head off a wall so yeah Ontario (laughs) is a a big beast (laughs) now is it mostly like uh, you know rolling hills kind of like you see a lot of the footage of Saskatchewan and stuff like that is that pretty like accurate of what you would see up there north northern ontario is in the tree ground and that kind of stuff but the egg like the egg land here um it's pretty flat really i mean at the end of the day if you took all the trees away the fence lines and the hardwood bushes and that kind of stuff that we have here like in eastern ontario it'd be pretty flat um at the end of the day i mean there's hills and stuff but yeah it's not big rolling hills or anything like that for for terrain it's Straight up agricultural honker ground, pretty much. <laughs> well, that's what makes it such a good waterfowling spot, man. You get all that low lying <laughs> water. Exactly. That's exactly it. So you said it. Uh, it was a pretty dry year this year. Um, Ontario was dry. Saskatchewan had a lot of water. The potholes were nice and full. Um, Saskatchewan had Ontario or. Saskatchewan had water when they needed it, and then we didn't have any of it all fall. We got rain like, I don't know, one day while we were there type deal, and the rest of it was dry. I'm sitting here in Ontario looking out in the office window right now talking to you, and it's raining like cats and dogs and has been for a couple of days here. So, um, yeah, Ontario, we were dry this summer, and it's making up for it now, and Saskatchewan was kind of the opposite, so... Yeah, that's pretty... the, the, fun, the fun and games of hunting different regions. 
Yeah, I mean, completely freaking. I mean, because you're looking at Saskatchewan and you're feeding, you know, the Central and the uh, Mississippi flyways, and where you're talking about over in Ontario, that's got to be what the very edge of the Mississippi all the way over really to the Eastern Flyway. Yeah, so all of our honkers here end up uh, going down through upstate New York to the Finger Lakes, uh, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and are basically going to end up in Maryland and Chesapeake Bay. That's where all of our honkers, you know, either end up or used to end up. It just depends on how cold it gets now to see how far south they go. So, Yeah, have I know on that, uh, that East Coast area, you're talking about the finish line for the birds. Um, down in, you know, around Virginia, Chesapeake Bay, all that good stuff. They've had a huge falling off of ducks um, compared to, you know, other parts of different flyways. They've had a really, really hurt, you know, duck population. Is it? Do you see that up there as bad? No, man. Uh, I, I sit on the board of directors for Wildlife Habitat Canada. We take care of the federal bird stamp. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we not only you know, pick the print that the the federal stamp's going to be each year. But we also um, supply a lot of research projects with funding and that kind of stuff that are that's generated from from the stamp. Um, but uh, when they changed all of that migration, like all the all the limits and everything like that, um, for everywhere underneath us, it honestly baffled me because like we've got a, we've got a great duck population up here in Ontario like we're we're covered in them um my personal opinion and I mean I know there's probably gonna be guys that listen to this that either aren't gonna be happy to hear it or might not even agree with me but I'm a firm believer in this, that they just don't make it to those places anymore it doesn't get cold enough to shove them where they need to go and you know that definitely would look like and represent um a hard drop off in population because places that used to get them just aren't getting them. Um, but I don't, I don't know if it's an actual population thing personally or not. So that's just, that's my shot in the dark and my two cents, whether it's the right one or not. But man, I could, I could see that because it just, we here in, you know, central Mississippi flyway, we just do not get snow like we used to and real cold stretches like we used to i mean it we get a lot more ice than uh than i yeah. ever remember as a kid and it'll go down to you know 15 or 20 in december and then the next week it'll be up at 70 and then two weeks later it'll be back down in the 40s like it yo-yos all over the place yeah. and it's like drastic swings and uh it's kind of like what's going on now uh you know, there's that big push coming in through North Dakota, Nebraska. We had a huge temperature drop. Went from being like mid-80s last week to like in the 30s here this week. And kind of early season, we'll get that big, huge push of birds and then nothing until December. It'll just yeah. be stale as all get out. And then by the end of December, January, we'll start seeing fresh birds again. But it's like, hey, there's three weeks left of season now at this point. Right, exactly. Like, I mean, you take eastern Ontario here. Like, I mean, <clears throat> I'm right on top of the St. Lawrence River and Lake Ontario. So Lake Ontario would always hold birds. It would never really freeze over, freeze over type deal. It would always hold birds, but like a very small amount compared to what the main migration would be, right? Well, you know, we would lose those, I'm going to say, 80% of our honkers would be gone by, you know, first week of December, December 10th, somewhere in there type deal, right? They would leave eastern Ontario, be froze up, covered in snow, good to go. We In eastern Ontario, where I live, um, you know, it would kind of be, you, know, you take five, six years ago, to kill a goose on closing day would kind of be, you know, we've had a weird year. And now, if we're not killing them on closing day, it's crazy. We don't know what to do with ourselves because there's, should still be here and that's because we're not getting that cold and that freeze up and everything like that so i mean there's you know half a million geese or more that should have been long gone by our closing day on december 28th and they're still here so if they're still here you know yeah things are probably going to suck below us where the geese used to end up right so it's it's great yeah it's a it's a weird one man i talked to guys from 
all over the freaking, uh, you know, North America and guys in Louisiana constantly, uh, you know, are super upset. Birds are always stopping further north, further north, further north. And, you know, it's all the hot water. Arkansas doesn't let anything further south, you know, and it's like, dude, I'm in Missouri. I'm north of Arkansas and they had a good year last year. And I'm pretty sure a decent year before the year before that, but there was like a five year stretch that birds weren't even making it all the way to Arkansas. They, the, the hot places are always going to have birds, your Stuttgart's, your, you know, along the Missouri river and all that stuff. Mississippi is always going to have birds, but the rest of the mass just doesn't come nearly as far South as it used to, because we just haven't had a sustained winter. Like you're talking about, it hasn't got cold and stayed cold. Yeah. I, I I agree entirely, and I think that's a huge, huge factor. I mean, they're just going to go to where <clears throat> where the food is and where the, there's open water. They don't have any reason to to keep going just for the sake of going, right? Like they don't. That that's why they migrate at the end of the day, right? They need food and they need water. That so they go to where it is, and when they hit the line where it is, they don't have any reason to go. And Unless yeah, they're... Mother Nature. I was going to yeah. say, unless they're crazy like speckle belly geese and they just do whatever. Then they do whatever. Then <laughs> then they might as well be snow geese for that matter. So. Right. Yeah. Specks are a lot of fun, but they, they definitely do have their days where they're just a different looking snow goose. There's no getting around that. Dude, they're everywhere. They're getting thicker and thicker. We used to never see them in my part of Missouri. I mean, it was rare. We've killed them like the last eight years. We'll run into random patches really? in, in January, you know, just really, really late. Like I said, normally they're out of here by the 1st of November. And we've been seeing a right. lot more in this part of the state. And it's just kind of kind of strange. They're, I think they're starting to really pick up in numbers. But uh, you you said that you were uh, on the, the National Federation for the state or the National Federal Stamp, like, uh, board? How, how'd you get involved with that? Uh, how long ago did I get involved? Was like four, four years ago, I think. Um, I got involved with that, and, uh, there was an opening. They were looking for a board member, um, and threw an application in to be part of it because I love, I love the conservation side of stuff, um, any opportunity to be able to give back to that was going to be incredible. And, uh, I don't know, I thought it'd be cool to be part of, uh, being part of picking something like that. You know, it's, it's such an aspect of my life that I've been involved in with the industry that, you know, to literally be like, yeah, I'm one of 10 people that got to look at the stamp and pick it a couple of years in advance. And then, you know, help have input on where the money that's raised from that goes to keep this industry and this sport alive. It, uh, it was, it was pretty cool. And I got lucky enough to be, be selected. I've got, I want to say two or three years left on my term on the board. So it'd be pretty cool to be involved for a few more years uh, with it. Yeah, man. That's uh when you brought that up, that first caught my attention. Cause, uh, you know, I know a lot of guys have been hunting 20, 30 years, and that's, like, never even crossed my mind, like, to get in. So you were like, oh, I'm on this, and I was like, whoa, that's a that's a pretty cool thing. And like I said, I'm yeah. I'm ignorant to it. I would assume that you guys have a different federal stamp than we do. We, we do, yeah. Okay. We, we absolutely do, yeah. It's pretty much the same kind of project, but, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a different stamp, yeah. Very cool, man. Now, like, how long has that been going? Is it, I think, what? They, first started, uh, they started that. They started our stamp project in 85, I want to say. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, what's that? Well, thir- 35 years, I guess, is what it is. We just celebrated our 35th, um, 35th year. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's it's been, it's been rolling strong, and it's, what kind of surprised me about it when I got into it is the amount of people that don't know what we are or what we do. Like, oh, yeah, buy a bird stamp, no big deal. It just comes from the government. It's another fee. It's another license. It's whatever. And it's like, no, that that's not it. This is an actual project. Like, $8.50 from you buying your stamp, like, actually goes back to conserving birds type deal. So it's, uh, 
it's an education thing for a lot of people too. It's uh, it, I think waterfowling would be you know pretty uh, pretty impacted by not having the federal stamp program for sure. Yeah, it's uh, I know down here it's like one of the few things that actually goes directly towards bird conservation you know because you you buy your state license and stuff like that and they kind of decide whatever they're going to do with it and my specific state sometimes i'm like what in the hell are you guys doing with all the licensing fees like you you never plant the refuges like you say you're going to every, there's always an excuse every single year the only thing that it'll be at the public refuges are flooded cockleburs like you know there's no merit down no corn down no nothing like that i'm like where the hell is this money going well with the federal stuff you know that that's not going to a state to divvy up and uh yeah Generally, I'm a pretty big states versus federal guy. Like, I would rather the states be able to make some decisions, but that's a whole different ballgame. But as far as, like, the the conservation stuff goes, I feel like the federal, you know, money is spent so much wiser. Yeah, I, I, would, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, it's no different up here with, you know, provincial versus the federal end of things, right? I mean, it's, it's really cool because, like, our program, like, I mean, we, well, the stamp costs $18.50 plus taxes, and the federal government gets $10 of it to do what they want to do with it, and $8.50 of it stays with our organization, Wildlife Habitat Canada, and all of that money gets divided up between grant applications, research projects, conservation projects, all that kind of stuff, so it's pretty cool to sit there and, you know, have all these applications and literally be one of 10 or 11 people that, you know, raise their hand to vote on where that money goes and what the projects are going to be. It's, it's, it's pretty awesome because it is, it's directly right to waterfowl straight to it. Well, and it's really cool because you get to have a direct impact and voice and where the money's being spent, you know, like you yeah. see people online all the time, just complaining about the different stuff and, what's this you actually you know have a voice in the system and uh you know get to raise your hand and vote on some stuff so it makes a it's a huge huge responsibility and that's really cool man yeah it's uh, it's awesome i'm very fortunate to be involved in it for sure now do you uh do you guys mess around obviously there's a stamp selected every year a painting selected are you part of the committee that like uh do you have to vote on the painting that's picked for the stamp every year the board doesn't vote on it. The board kind of uh, decides. The, the board kind of decides on like, okay, well, let's put a list together of what this year is going to be uh, for a stamp. We all kind of, you know, what's it been in the past? What do we want to repeat? How long has it been? What do we think? And put a list together, narrow the list down, and then once that bird's been picked, we all decide, okay, well, here's what it's going to be then it basically goes out to tender for the artist. The artists all, you know, submit uh, their paintings and all that kind of stuff for the stamp. And then um, there's basically a voting day where, you know, we'll dwindle it down to a handful of them. And then there's uh, between federal government electees and, and, you know, our office staff and that kind of stuff, there's a day where it all gets voted on and, Basically, the one with the most votes wins. So we'll kind of dwindle it down, and then there's another, let's call it a committee, that actually votes on it and selects it. But yeah, to be able to decide, like, oh, 2021 is going to be this bird. We do get, we have that conversation and go from there, which is, uh, honestly, it's actually probably one of my favorite conversations that we get to have every year on it. So, yeah, kind of cool. That's very cool, man. I, uh, to not have to be the one who actually decides which painting is the good one. I, uh, I'm doing a little call maker build off, you know, competition. It started with 16 and we're down to four now. And the only thing that I wanted to be able to like have my hand on was picking the materials they have to use for this round of calls. And, uh, I told him, I was like, I want nothing to do with the judging. I'm a call maker. I know what to judge. But I want nothing to do with the judging. I'm gonna outsource that stuff to somebody else. I just want to enjoy it, you know. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. That'd be that'd be much the same way as picking uh, picking the bird, but not picking the actual print. I can can totally understand where you're coming from because when you get that kind of talent, much like your like your call makers. I mean, you there's some some talented call makers out there, and when you dwindle them down from sixteen to four, man, I would not want to be involved in sorting through that crowd by any means. I can hear you there. <laughs> Well, you yourself, you know, you said you've been making calls for like eight years. What you said you got addicted to the calling side of things, you know, a couple of years into it. And uh, like what got you into the call making portion of it? Um, a couple factors, really. Um, I was always that teenager, the kid, the 20 year old, whatever, that was like, had, you know, like every call ever created type deal. I was like, ooh, what if I put this one with this part? What if I put this to this? And we'll switch this out and like Frankenstein calls all over the place type deal. Just trying to find different sounds and create different stuff. And then it kind of progressed to me being like, I think I want to kill a limited geese with something that I've designed. So I started playing with it and went from there. And then a couple of buddies, uh, myself, you know, like, well, let's, see if we could sell some of these and started selling them and then started selling more and more and then we had we got national contracts um with a distribution company up here and canadian tires which are you know a very big chain uh, they've got over 500 stores up here and Holy you know cow. they they came to us for supplying them and you know we make everything from high-end acrylic stuff to middle-of-the-run stuff at the Delrin, all the way down to we create all of our own polycarb stuff for, you know, the mass sales stuff, right? The volume stuff. So, yeah, it was, it was just an evolution, really. It was a snowball got kicked down the hill by wanting to kill a limited geese with something that I created. And, uh, yeah, just kind of went from there with it type deal. So it's more or less the evolution of it. Okay, so a lot of the people that listen to this thing are call makers, call collectors, that type of stuff. That is a very fast gloss over of that whole process you just talked about because you're being humble about it. But, like, how the heck do you get in contact with one of the biggest suppliers out there? Like, what was that like? Be a very annoying human, pretty much. (laughs) Just make the phone ring, do the homework, prepare yourself... Like, um, it, it essentially started with, you know, going into one of the stores and talking to the one owner, you know, kind of having a, a mutual, you know, I was introduced type deal. And it was like, yeah, I sell these in here, but you have to get it approved with corporate. And it's like, okay, well, how do you do that? And then it was just this, like, road, you know, lined with pebbles type deal. Pick up this pebble, go to the next one. Find the next pebble, go to the next one. You're on the path, but you had to put the puzzle pieces together to be able to do it. And then it was, uh, you know, the whole corporate game, you know, get a hold of this guy, wait for a phone call back for 10 days, then reply to his email and wait for the next guy to get back from holidays a week later and, you know, just chase it type deal. Really not, uh, really not give up on it. And then, you know, uh, had everything structured, had everything ready to go, and really right place, right time, and just enough work basically put it in there. Very fortunate. Um, this, it doesn't have anything to do with our calls being better than anybody else's. I mean, there's a lot of incredible call makers out there and Canadian call makers out there. Um, just kind of, we were able to pick up all the pebbles going down the road and had, a, had what we needed type deal. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of uh, chasing the corporate ladder for sure at the initial stages, without a doubt. Yeah, I was gonna say, man, that uh, like, obviously you got into it just wanting to tinker around and mess with your own stuff, then kill some geese with it. And I think there are thousands of people that are to that level. And I, you know, yes. me personally, I would never want to sell in a big box store because that just that's not what out it you can't do the real custom stuff it it becomes your life freaking mike stelsner you know he's up in uh minnesota he's part of this call making uh this call making competition and the day before his call was due i said it in the last episode that he said he was on a uh three thousand 
call back order for shields but it was actually 300 but he still had to have it done within like a couple of days and he's like yeah i haven't been able to touch a custom call because i've been hammering this stuff out um but yeah that that definitely becomes life there's no getting around that so i was gonna say how the heck okay so to start that last one i was thinking uh you almost had to have like a mindset because it's no easy thing to get molds for polycarb calls. You know, like <laughs> you had to do some research and really invest some money. Do you guys, obviously you have to see and see if you're providing to 500 different uh, outlets. Was that like always the plan before you made your pitch or was that like a, Hey, we have to ramp no, up. No, it wasn't really, it wasn't really the, it wasn't really the plan, but it quickly, it quickly became it. Um, myself and and my business partner with it, um, we're both very much like uh, we're not half half assed kind of people. I was like, okay, well, let's do this. And then as opportunities come up, it was like, wow, let's do this. Like we're, we're this close. Why not go to the next step? And then you know you get to the next step, and you're like, well, there's an opportunity. Let's do this. And we had it, we always had the mindset that like we wanted to be 100% Canadian. We wanted to be Canadian made. So then when it comes to the box store, basically saying, hey, we like all your products, but the volume we would sell would really come from the polycarb end of things. So I was like, well, okay, let's look into that. And then it was, you know, stick true to the roots of how do we do a Canadian made and all that kind of stuff. And, okay, well, there's an investment to get into the polycarb mold um, end of things and all that kind of jazz, but, you know, if we're going to get this contract and, you know, we can get the national distribution to streamline things and all this kind of jazz, is it worth it? Crunch the numbers, it's worth it, did it. And then, you know, it, uh, again, it was just it was just a process, and it was one of those things where it's like, well, we've come this far, let's, let's not stop now. What, what can we do here if we do this and if we take the next step? So that was pretty much the process with, with a lot of it. And then, and then the national, we, you know, we got national distribution. So it streamlined, you know, the production and the sales and, you know, we deliver to distribution a couple times a year. So that helped with it not being so much of a, you know, every day, you know, Oh, here's, Here's a call. Here's an order for 100 calls. Here's an order for 20 calls. Here's an order for 400 calls. So the national distribution and them taking care of the shipping and the sales really, um, really actually helped on that on that volume and to think still being able to live a family life and have other businesses type deal. Yeah, run run and guided hunts in two different provi- provinces at the same time. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. It, uh, it allows you to do things like that. Yes. Well, I was gonna say, dude, that yeah. is five hundred stores. Like that. That is very, very large. Like I, there's not. I don't know of many freaking call companies in America that are distributing to five hundred. Maybe somebody who got like a deal with uh with Walmart, like a Duck Commander or something like that. Sometimes you'll right. see some Buck Gardeners right. in Walmart. But there's not 500 freaking outdoor stores, in a, <laughs> you know, not 500. No, no, and, and don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. I mean, some of those stores, some of those stores are going to have, you know, their corporate mandated like 11 calls in in the store because it has to be available everywhere, and they might sell one in a year, they might not, just because of where the store is located um, in comparison to where waterfowl is. Um, but yeah, you do have a big number of them that have full-fledged hunting sections right in them, completely dedicated to it, that are moving product because they're in a waterfowl um, demographic, so to speak. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, the 500 stores, you know, you're not pumping that volume to every one of them. You've got your ones that shine in the crowd for sure. But um, yeah, we can say that there's, at least 10 calls in every single store and you know they do restock so it's uh, it's busy enough but it's not you know don't get me wrong that it's not like you know all those stores are not just pumping them out because of where they are type deal right well that's like um where i live at in missouri is springfield missouri it's home of the largest and the original bass pro 
And uh, yes. yes, we, dude, I'll go through there in November and then come back through in January. You know, I t- we used to have a, a yearly pass to the Wonders of Wildlife Museum, aquarium type thing. And if it's cold, crappy outside, we'll take the kids up there and then go through the aquarium and all this kind of cool stuff, see sharks and that kind of nonsense. So we would go like once every other week. I mean, we were there all the time. But I I would only make it over to the waterfowl side of things, you know, every now and then, once or twice, uh, a waterfowl season. And you'd stop by the shop, the uh, call side of the, the display case. You do not see that many calls move out of that display case. Now, as far as the clamshell polycarb goes, that's where the call movement is. So it makes total sense that, you know, they said that that's where the majority of the, the business is going to come from. Now, when it, you go... It, it from, is, absolutely. I'm sorry. Um, when you go from your original pitch to they hand you an order sheet of this is how many we want for the year, were you like, holy shit, we don't have very much time? <laughs> yeah. It was it was definitely an oh snap moment. Um, they were, I mean, it, it's pretty awesome because they sign on new vendors usually at the beginning of the year, January, February, kind of around the shot show time and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do they do a lot of their new vendor stuff that time, and then you know, the first year it was like a six month lead time type deal. So it's you know, and then you everything scheduled. From there, moving forward. So yeah, the first one was definitely an O snap, but um, you know, with with plenty of fair warning for sure. That it wasn't uh, it wasn't okay. You're in. Here's your order. Um, see you in ten days. It definitely wasn't that. So. Right, right. I you know I've heard that uh, packaging is like one of the biggest pain in the butts in the whole process. Obviously, you know if you've been messing with calls for a while and you got it down to where the point of selling them. You know the call making side of thing is not a not the hard part. Once you get the polycarb stuff down, like that's not the hard part. The putting it in yeah. a freaking package to make it cost efficient. That's and all the that part nonsense. that makes you want to bang your head off a wall. And there is not enough music or YouTube videos to keep you busy to make it fun. Doesn't exist. That's the that's the mind numbing part for sure. It's definitely packaging them. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, man, you're doing this. This hunting freaking outfitter game, and one of the places is 20 hours away from your house, you know, like, do you have a, a facility, like a shop, I would assume, doing that much product? You, you're not doing this out of the, sh- the garage at your house or the, the shop yeah, behind your house. Honestly, the honestly the nice thing is, is, like I said, we've got national distribution, so I mean, they take care of all the sales, and there's so many of the sales that are, you know projections by the big corporation right so i mean you know going into the fall what your fall is going to look like the district we've already supplied the distribution company with it and they're supplying restock orders and everything like that directly so i mean there's there's top-ups during the hunting season but um if we didn't have the distribution company oh yeah it would be impossible to run the outfitting business at the same time absolutely impossible but with sales projections and you know second party shipping and and uh stocking of of product in advance and that's what allows us to be able to do that's what allows me to be able to run my outfitting business as well so there's a lot of planning that goes into through the summer and the spring yeah i was gonna say man like it seems like once snows are done you know, for the spring season, you have to immediately come back to the uh, to the shop and start, you know, getting your orders and getting everything ready to go and, what, having four or five yeah. months to finish everything up. Pretty much. That's uh, that's pretty much how it works, which, <clears throat> which works quite well, to be honest with you, so. Yeah, do you got, you got your kids, wife, everything at work, using child labor? Uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's a professional call packager. <laughs> um, he's not uh, he he's not a fan of it at some points, but uh, yeah, he's uh, he's good he's good to go. He's good at it. So I was gonna say, man, I yeah. freaking have him tuning calls and everything. Uh, he do, he doesn't tune them. He'll jam inserts in uh, in duck calls and then package them. But no, he uh, he's not not to the tuning stage yet. 
he's got a couple of years left on him before he gets there. That's freaking awesome, man. That is, uh, you're a busy, busy dude, man. It, uh, got far more going on than so many people out there that say they don't have time to do anything. Does that just absolutely kill you <laughs> when you hear somebody say, I don't have enough time to do something? No, I usually just complain with them. I usually just complain with them. <laughs> Everybody, everybody's busy and everybody's busy in their own regards. She all comes down to time management. That's real key. That is for me. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna say, man, like how? Tell me some of the difficulties of running two. Do you guys have lodges up in uh, Saskatchewan? Yeah, I, I'm actually building a brand new one in Saskatchewan. It, we. The foundation was just poured uh, 10 days ago, I guess, uh, somewhere around there. So, yeah, we're building a brand new 6,400-square-foot uh, lodge. Um, foundation's poured. We're basically waiting for winter to go away now, and it will be that new facility will be open and ready for next fall. Um, so, yeah, we've got we've got that rocking. Um, so they better open yeah, up the freaking border to, is what you're saying. Pardon me? I was going to say, so they better open up the border this year. They better open the border, yeah. Yeah, we are ready for that to happen. Um, yeah, I mean, trust me, there's been a lot of people that are like, you're building a lodge this year? I was like, well, I don't really plan, I wasn't planning on retiring next year, so uh, we're doing it for the future anyway, so it was already planned, so, you know, the, if you're if you're not planning for the future, what are you planning for so the borders oh, yeah. aren't going to stay closed forever, and I'm not retiring next year. So on we go with it. Well, yeah, three steps forward and two steps back is still one step forward. You know, like you got to bet on yourself and keep moving. Yeah, precisely. Couldn't agree more. So it's pretty important to see the big picture. So how explain some of the difficulties of trying to run you know another a hunt party right. i can't even imagine once you get the lodge up and going you know somewhere yeah. what how many miles is it yeah. 900 miles away Ooh, it's gotta be more than that yeah, you said 22 be, hours it'd be, it'd be pretty close to that and like don't get me wrong i mean like this is the first year first year of what uh oh lost him all right, we got him back up and recording, and you said uh, this is your first year, and I would assume your first year of uh, running the two parties, or the, the two uh, provinces? No, this is the first year that we've driven out to Saskatchewan, like gotcha. I was I was saying there, that um, it, it's, not, it's not that bad being in two spots type deal, because they usually fly, so we're there for the month of April, and we're there for September and October, and my hunts in Ontario only overlap for like a week type deal. So there's really only two camp, two camps to manage for a very small window of time. And then Ontario, I'm back here. I operate for November and the first little bit of December type deal. So running the two camps isn't really, it, it's, it's not that terrible. Um, and they are a long ways apart, but you know, we're at one and then we're at the other one. So it's not, not bad on an overlap. If I was running both, you know, trying to be in one spot but operate both at the same time that i feel would be very tough but we don't have that bridge to cross so that's that's nice anyways yeah for sure man i was gonna say if you're uh if you're trying to manage say you were running both of them from what september 1st all the way till may whenever the heck snows in i know you have uh everything shut down pretty much from december until what april when snows start piling back up there but uh, yep. that would be a lot to have uh, a whole nother party, a whole nother lodge to deal with. Yeah, no thanks. That doesn't sound like fun. I don't. I don't think I would want to be involved in that. That sounds. That sounds like a lot of logistical nightmares. <laughs> exactly, man. Well, you've been doing the the guide life thing for you said eighteen years, like. Yeah, I got into it. I guess I guided part time. When I, uh, my first year, I was 19, and then pretty much got into her full-time um, right after that, like 20 years old, started doing it full-time, yeah, and spent the month of September guiding for somebody either in Saskatchewan or Alberta, and then was back here in Ontario for the 1st of October, and ran hard for 
the entire season here. And it, yeah, it, it's all I've really done. And then, you know, it progressed from just being, you know, guiding, working for somebody to, well, I'm going to do this on my own. And then, you know, being full in, full in Ontario, looking for a way to expand and expand it to Saskatchewan. And it's just literally been, it's been my life. And I mean, the fact that, you know, the support of family and that understands the process and understands the lifestyle and everything like that to be able to feed my family and support them by doing something that I love. I mean, the guy can't be much more grateful for something like that. So I was going to say, man, like I, you see everybody looking at the Instagram, the Facebook pictures and, you know, seeing big piles and really cool, you know, pieces of scenery taken through or little clips of footage and stuff like that. And it's like, did you, obviously you grew up around it, but I don't think people understand the amount of work, the no sleep, the logistic part of just running the guide service um, and outfitter service, you know, with lodges and stuff like that going on. I don't think people realize how much goes into that. That's a lot more than shooting birds. Yeah, the shoot, shooting birds is like the, it's the smallest portion of it at the end of the day. Um, and I would agree entirely with everything you just said. I don't really know how to summarize it better. I mean, there's so much people don't see. There's so many, you know, new new guys that want to get into it, and as soon as they do it, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, what is this? Yeah, everything that, like all the fun parts, you don't get to do that. It's all the non-fun parts. That's our job to do and to make sure go off without a hitch. And the the behind the scenes stuff is the biggest thing. Um, You know, I run my outfit and business off of control the controllables is kind of how I look at a lot of of it. Um, I can do everything I can do to control the birds, but at the end of the day, you can't control the birds. But what I can control is customer service that I provide, the experience that I that I provide, the lodge atmosphere, and the quality time. I can literally control all of those. So if I dot those I's and cross those T's and, you know, surround myself and put a team together that is as knowledgeable as I could possibly find to control the wild animals as much as possible, then what else more can you do at the end of the day, right? But it's all that other stuff that nobody sees outside of social media that is actually the important part to running the business at the end of the day. Sure, the the stack pictures are, you know, what everybody's there for, um, and we put them up. There's no getting around that, but um, that's kind of the expected part. The rest of it is what keeps people coming back. You know, because guys come to us for a vacation, right? They're they're on holidays at the end of the day. So if you went to a, you know, if you went to an all inclusive resort in the winter with your family, and the bed wasn't comfortable, or the food was no good, or the service staff was rude and sucked, but the weather was nice and the beach was comfortable, you still wouldn't go back, even though you went for the beach and the weather. If everything else sucked, you still wouldn't go back, right? Where if everything else was awesome, but it rained while you were there, and, you know, you wish you had a thicker cushion on your beach chair, you'd probably still go back. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that we we really try to emphasize on more so than other guys. Like, there's a lot of great outfits out there, but I really like to dot the I's and cross the T's on all the other factors, not just the stack, because... That's what I feel that that's where social media has really, really ruined it and honestly made it harder to find good guys to hire for the industry because everybody just thinks it's the pile pick and it's not. Yeah, well, exactly. And that's something, you know, having to explain to the guides that you're looking to hire, like, hey, man, you're here to you're here to guide. You're not here to hunt. <laughs> like, yeah. you're going to do all the yeah. shitty work. <laughs> like, it's it's just part yeah. of the game, man. You're here to bust your balls endlessly just to let you know <laughs> yeah i think that's a, a romanticized position that is not all that romantic <laughs> you know it is a no. uh, you have to have a deep love for guiding like even guys that love to hunt waterfowl won't make good guides 
Like, there's just some guys out there that won't. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely agree. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, it doesn't get any easier the longer you do it. There's definitely different layers and different aspects to it. You know, it's, you know, then then you add into the factor and add the layer that, you know, guys are away from home. They're away from the family. They're away from their wife, their kids. Um, you know, everything like that, right? The, the, that, that's a very big layer. So, I mean, you jam long days and stressful days on top of all that. And, you know, you just continue to add factors in there that make it not what everybody thinks it is. But, you know, everybody that does do it year in and year out, day in and day out, man, we're, we just, we wouldn't trade it for anything we do. There's no way we could give it up. We wouldn't be, we wouldn't be us. And when I say us, I mean, I'm probably talking in a very general term to every guide and every outfitter that does it for a career because when you do it, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't be you if you weren't doing it anymore. Exactly. Well, that's, uh, you know, when we were filming our little local TV show, I would have to tell people when they, you know, I would interview, you know, a new guy to come out and help join, you know, the team and stuff like that. I'd be like, listen, man, we are a TV show first. We are hunting second. Like, if the wind's yeah. not right, the picture's not right, there's not enough light outside to film this. I don't care if there's a thousand birds in your face. We are not pulling the trigger. Like, that is yeah. the hardest part about doing this thing is you, you're, you're going to have to jump on a camera some days on some really epic hunts. You're going to have to be on a camera. And it's like you have yeah. to be okay with that. If not, I don't need you here. Exactly. Yep. Absolutely. I know exactly what you're saying. It's crazy, man. Like I said, you got a ton of stuff going on, man. I hope that border gets opened up for you. And uh, I know you got to get out and do some scouting later in the night. But I want to say I really appreciate you giving me some time tonight, man. I really enjoyed this one a lot. Oh, I'm the one that that needs to be thanking you. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely love listening to the show and to be able to have the opportunity to to jump on here and talk to you is greatly appreciated from my side of the fence. Absolutely, buddy. Any time that you want to come on, you just let me know. We'll make it happen. I appreciate it very much. Buddy, well, um, give everybody your information where they can find you on social, your website, all that good stuff. Yeah, definitely. Um, Instagram's probably the best way. Pretty much uh, live on there for the advertising side of things. Um, personal is Ryan underscore Waterfowl. And uh, the best one to get a hold of me on for any needs, whether it's calls or um, just want to watch what we're doing as the season goes on with the outfitting is Apex underscore Waterfowl. So be happy to answer anybody's questions or dms or whatever and the door's always open yeah we'll get the damn borders opened up and then you can start really having those doors open brother (laughs) yeah exactly no joke well well said (laughs) all right buddy well i really appreciate it my man hey thank you you uh you have a great evening you too buddy good luck scouting thank you all right thanks man bye All right, Ryan Reynolds, everybody, owner of Apex Waterfowl, Capital Waterfowl Company. Look him up on Instagram. Let me make sure I said that right before I uh, send you guys down the road with bad information. Capital Waterfowl Company, yeah, exactly. Um, Look him up on Instagram, check him out. Uh, Man, he's got a lot of stuff going on. Busy, busy guy. Hopefully they get the borders open up for him soon. Like it, show it, and like it, share it, enjoy it. Um, yeah, look up Unstable Calls, check out Fox Red Apparel, and, uh, gonna do the, uh, the football wrap-up here soon, so the Denver Broncos gotta win, and they end up costing me a loss in the, uh, the pick'em, so you guys have a good one.